Hello, and welcome to the Engineers Collective, the podcast by New Civil Engineer. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and share this podcast with your colleagues. It's free to download on all podcast sites, or you can listen at newcivilengineer.com forward slash podcast. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems. Around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to accelerate project delivery and improve asset performance for the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment. Together, we are Advancing Infrastructure. Welcome to the latest episode of the Engineers Collective. I'm Claire Smith and I'm editor of New Civil Engineer. I'll be joined in a minute by our Head of Content and Engagement, Rob Horgan, and our reporter, Catherine Kennedy, as we talk through the latest developments in the civil engineering sector over the last month, as well as reflecting on how the sector has changed as we reach the first anniversary of the first pandemic lockdown in the UK. While few would argue that the pandemic and the impact of the lockdown on businesses and people's lives has been challenging, one of the positives for the long term that hopefully will come out of it is a greater focus on well-being and the feeling that it's now acceptable to talk about mental health openly. And that's a subject that I'll be discussing later with our features editor, Nadine Badu, and a couple of our special guests. As well as looking at the longer term, we'll also be talking about how to help yourself and identify if your colleagues are struggling with mental health issues and looking at what practical steps people can take. But more of that later. Hello, Rob and Catherine. Hi, Claire. Hi, Claire. So we're now a year on from the start of us working from home, but the construction industry is quite a different place, with it having gone from site shutdowns at the beginning of March last year to getting back to work on site. And we're running a series of news stories this week and opinion pieces as well on newcivilengineer.com about the impact of the pandemic on civil engineering. And don't forget to subscribe if you want to read all of our coverage on this topic and other content too. But what are the main things we've uncovered about the pandemic impact while researching these stories? I mean, I guess the impact on travel is probably one of the most obvious issues. Catherine, you've been looking at that one, haven't you? Yeah, that's right. And I think with travel patterns generally, it is just still unclear how that's going to pan out. Long term, we don't know what exactly the travel demand will be, what people's travel patterns will be. But I think when you look back at this period of time, it potentially will be a really interesting moment because it could be the moment when everything changes for that, but it is all still evolving. And I think one big question is, will there be more of a need for good long distance real connections and kind of more importance placed on that if people are going to move out of big cities like London and maybe be commuting in on fewer days or something like that um, as and when and if they go back to offices. Another interesting thing, the chief executive of Transport for Wales has actually said that the demand for the South Wales Metro project is unaffected by the pandemic. And he made an interesting point saying that potentially the suggestion that it is going to have a big impact on public transport is more relevant for the southeast of England than for other parts of the UK like Wales. So he says in Wales, only about 6% of journeys are taken by train and car is the main mode of transport. So he says even with the pandemic, there is still the potential to increase rail journeys in places like Wales, where there's a slightly different focus. So I imagine it's going to depend partly on the place as well as as people's travel patterns. Yeah, I guess the, the drop in public transport uses had a major impact on Transport for London, which relies on passenger fares to operate and fund future projects. We've seen multi-million pound bailouts over the last year and projects like Crossrail 2 being mothballed as a result. 
We've also seen government take over running of the train operating companies during the, the height of the lockdown. And the Scottish government announced last week that it was going to take over its regional train operator, ScotRail, and nationalise that. But will the 21st of June, when all the restrictions are removed, mean that everyone just gets back onto trains and buses and life returns to normal very quickly? I'm, I'm not really sure that it will. And I think that people will have maybe a lingering unease about using public transport after more than a year of avoiding it. And I wonder if that would drive up use of private cars as people return to the office. And one of the things the government's really done over the last year to combat that is promote active travel, you know, walking and cycling and create infrastructure for that as an alternative to boost sustainability of travel and really help with the drive to net zero in 2050. There have been two tranches of funding released so far. The first was really get ideas onto the ground quickly after the start of the lockdown. And then last summer, there was a second one focused more on longer term projects. We spoke to Amy and WSP about active travel schemes that they've been working on in Manchester and other regions in the UK last summer on the podcast, this podcast. And that some of the schemes they've been putting in place have been really well received, but news from around the country appears to be quite mixed about whether they've actually worked or not. And it'd be interesting to see how they use when people start to return to the office and perhaps a more normal way of life. One of the challenges of putting these schemes in place that Amy were talking about was the fact they didn't really have the data about how these schemes would be used or how much recycling was happening in the area. And the issue we've just put into press of NC at the moment, we've got quite an interesting feature on Strava, which many cyclists, runners and walkers use to log their activities. And developers can take some of the background data from these journeys, which enable local planners to use it to guide decisions. I think it's quite interesting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, for the our news coverage, I've been looking at the aviation industry, which I think few could argue that's probably been one of the hardest hit sectors. And I was watching a Transport Select Committee meeting on the impact of coronavirus on aviation. And one of the speakers observed that few of us could have imagined that holidays would actually be illegal a year ago. I mean, that, that just feels really weird, doesn't it? Bizarre, yeah. It is very different. And the challenge facing the sector is even more acute than that of public transport. I mean, do people want to fly in the same volumes as they did before? I really don't know. I mean, it'd be great for the environment if they don't. But what does it mean for the future of airports and expansion schemes? And even if people do want to fly, it's not as simple as the UK declaring non-essential travel to be legal and all getting on a plane. There's also the issue of travelling to countries where there are other variants of COVID. It's a slower vaccination programme. I mean, maybe we'll need, uh, as well as having our new British blue passports, we need a vaccine passport to travel this year. Rob, you've been looking at airport expansion plans in more detail, though. What's been happening on that front? Yeah, it's really interesting. It's actually um, quite interesting that you've been talking about active travel there and then aviation travel, because from a personal point of view, I don't want to get back on the northern line and stand in someone's armpit. But I still do want to go on, you know, my holiday every summer. So it'll be interesting to see. I think um, I don't expect people not to want to get on planes again. Maybe there'll be less business travel because of the, you know, Zoom revolution or Teams revolution or whatever you want to call it. I think there might be less business travel, potentially even more curbs to deter business travel because of climate goals. That's the thing with airport expansions as well. They've sort of been hit by COVID is the main driver. Obviously, the passenger numbers have have been absolutely decimated by COVID-19 and uh, travel bans around the world, but also by this sort of push to reduce carbon emissions. So in, in terms of expansions within the UK, London City Airport was one of the first to announce that it was putting its, its expansion plans on hold. It was already in the middle of construction and work 
continued until the end of the end of last year and then ground to a halt and has been paused indefinitely. Similar thing happened with Bristol Airport's expansion plans. They weren't in construction, but they sort of paused them for a while to to see what was going on there. Obviously, there are airport expansion plans which are still pushing forward, like Leeds Bradford Airport, recently approved by by the local planning committee there. And obviously, Heathrow is the big one for the UK. Plans are now technically back on because they've uh, overturned the court's decision. However, there's no likelihood of the construction getting underway anytime soon because of the, the impact of COVID. There's also the latest carbon budget recommendations, which recommends that you can't have an airport expansion without scaling back airports elsewhere in the country. So it'd be interesting to see the government's response to that carbon budget, actually. And I think that will have a a bigger impact on airport expansions going forward than COVID has had. COVID is sort of a short term, you know, it's impacted passengers this year in the last year just gone and will probably do for the remainder of this year. But beyond that, I think the net zero challenge will have more of an impact on expanding airports than COVID. Interestingly, Paris's airport expansion has been axed because of France's net zero emissions targets, which I think is probably the the most high profile project that we've seen cancelled because of aims to reach net zero and to reduce carbon. So it'd be interesting to see if other countries follow suit um, and more interesting to see how the UK government um, responds to this carbon budget. But away from airports, there's also been major cost overruns and project delays due to COVID pretty much across all all sectors and all industries or the big ticket projects such as Hinkley Point C, Thames Tideway, Crossrail, they've all seen budget increases and delays as a result of initially as a result of the the first lockdown which pretty much paused all construction work across the country but then subsequently by working restrictions implementing social distancing at sites etc that sort of thing but it's not all bad news because I don't want to sound like I'm always doom and gloom on the podcast you know since since covid entered our lives work on hs2 has been going from strength to strength since receiving notice to proceed on the first phase between London and Birmingham. Uh, This last week alone, we've written about work starting on the Chilterns Tunnel and contractors getting piles in the ground for what will become the UK's longest viaduct. So plenty of work going on there. And that's just on phase one. Obviously, phase 2A at some point this year will probably start main works as well and remains to be seen what happens with phase 2B. But also to come out of the COVID-19 pandemic is, is project speed which we're, we're yet to see what, what the full benefits of it will be, aside from perhaps speeding up the A66 Trans-Pennine upgrade and giving funding to East West Rail and the Northumberland line quicker than, than was anticipated. But it'll be, be interesting to follow project speed over the next year. The rail industry in particular has been challenged to, to find new ways of cutting project times in half and construction times, that is, and costs as well. So could be some drastic changes which could spark a a wave of new projects as it were. Rob you mentioned earlier about the Zoom revolution and Teams revolution so we're doing business differently but Catherine you've been looking at other things that have changed in the sector as well haven't you? Mm -hmm. Things we're doing differently now. Yeah so I suppose this is sort of another positive thing to come out of 
of COVID and it is the use of, of drones and technology on, on different construction sites. So drones first had their, I guess, big moment in lockdown one when all the sites shut and no one could be there anymore and firms started monitoring their um, projects remotely, sending drones out and then watching the footage and the, the images that were sent back. And I think since construction sites are now operating again, Obviously, people can be on site, but companies have realized there's potentially a way to use both that tech sort of technology approach and also have people on site. So you use the drones, you use the iPad, you use the more digital processes alongside sending people onto sites. Or you can even send, I mean, I know some companies I think are maybe sending a drone onto a site, seeing whether or not they need to send someone they're kind of beforehand so then they they choose either we do need to send someone or no we've seen everything we need to from the images that have been sent back so now there's a sort of more hybrid way of going which is a positive that I think wasn't there before or wasn't there to the same extent and and the pandemic has accelerated the use of of that sort of technology. It's going to be really interesting to see that how it evolves in in the future mm-hmm. but there's been plenty of other news going on too hasn't there where else have you been working on Catherine? Yeah, so our big, um, one of our big exciting moments of this month was the union connectivity review coming out. So that was a that was a good day because we've been reading the the submissions to that since must be December or January. The different ideas that were being submitted to that review. So it was good to see where it's at and what they're thinking. So basically, the review will consider transport connections in the UK and how they could be improved. And big kind of key points to come out of the interim report, there's going to be a feasibility study of the Irish Sea Link. So that's the bridge or tunnel between Scotland and Northern Ireland. And then it also identifies other priorities or, I suppose, concerns, which the review will focus on going forward. So those include the lack of HS2 connections with Scotland and Wales, um, and also congestion on the M4 corridor in South Wales. Those are kind of a couple of big ones we've picked out. There's a whole list. Um, and the government have now, I think they've committed 20 million to exploring the development of some of the projects that have been identified at this stage. And then the final report is due out in the summer. So that just provided a bit more information on what's going on there. And on a yeah, on a similar note, another big, big story of this month was the idea for a roundabout under the Isle of Man, so that I think it was just before the interim report of the Union Connectivity Review came out, this suggestion was made. So basically it was from some Downing Street officials and they suggested three tunnels under the Irish Sea, which could connect in this underground roundabout underneath the Isle of Man. And then one single tunnel would run on from the Isle of Man to Northern Ireland. So the proposal has three starting points. So one at Stranraer, one at Haysham and one near Liverpool. So that caused a bit of a stir. And I think, to be honest, uh, provided more questions than answers, really, in terms of are we talking about a road tunnel or a rail tunnel? Can people surface? Do we need a service station? You can't really put a service station underground. Should we surface in the Isle of Man and have an above ground roundabout? So a lot of sort of logistical challenges, but that um, that was an interesting one this month. That's what engineers love is a problem to solve, though, isn't it? <laughs> 
So, Rob, obviously we've had the the budget since we did the last news roundup on the podcast. Did our predictions on the last episode come true? And what else was in there? I know we were disappointed the integrated rail plan didn't come out, but what else did come through? I think when we said that the integrated rail plan might be published alongside the the budget, we were we were wishing rather than uh, expecting. I think what what we perhaps didn't realise at the time is that we won't see the integrated rail plan for quite some time now. It's been announced this week that it's been delayed until May because the government won't be able to get it out the door before Perda kicks in ahead of the local elections, which take place on May the sixth. So, I. Um, expecting the integrated rail plan on May the 7th as there's no reason (laughs) to hold it beyond then. Uh, It is obviously extremely frustrating for the industry and for Transport for the North in particular who who have no real steer what to do with Northern Powerhouse Rail. It's kind of, without getting too political, obviously the the government was elected on its levelling up agenda and of improving connections uh, in, in the North made all these these pledges and it's now it's asked transport for the north to hold its northern powerhouse rail business case until the integrated rail plan has been published which seemed like a fair enough um suggestion as transport for the north were gonna put their business case forward in i think it was february or march and the integrated rail plan was always earmarked for early 2021 so it seems like a sensible suggestion but now the the rail plan has been pushed back again we're looking at you know months of uncertainty for Northern Powerhouse Rail, and it, it ties into this uncertainty around rail in general. and And the budget was very light on any any suggestions around rail. There was a bit more clarity for roads and and road investments, and we obviously got the confirmation of the uh, infrastructure bank in Leeds and the twenty. It was twenty. Was it twenty billion or twelve billion? Twelve billion. Twelve billion. Twelve billion. Twelve billion. I've I've added eight billion on there, but. <laughs> What's eight billion between friends? You got a new job as a chancellor. <laughs> but, yeah, there you go. But yeah, no. So twelve billion. It'll be interesting to see what that money goes on, what that what that goes to funding. But in terms of clarity for rail, which was the sort of the the big thing we were hoping for out of the budget, it's probably more unclear now, to be honest, than it was than it was a week ago, <laughs> so, or a month ago. Sorry. Okay, so there's not much news on major projects or projects going forward, but Catherine, you've been looking at the report that's come out of last summer's fatal derailment in Scotland, haven't you? What have we learned from that? Yeah, so the the report has come out um, about the Stonehaven accident. So it has actually been informed by two reviews which have been published at the same time. And those reviews have been undertaken by the two task forces that were set up following the, the derailment. So there was an earthworks and a weather task force. They've now published their findings, which have informed this review. So there's a range of, I think, over 50 recommendations. So it's huge. Loads of stuff. Um, on a similar note to before on the drones, actually, they have recommended increased helicopter and drone inspections, especially if there have been periods of heavy rainfall. So there is a bit of a focus on on the use of technology there and then also using, I think, quite advanced weather forecasting technology as well. Other things, drainage initiatives and sort of culture and organisational change and upskilling the workforce are all things that feature. So there's, there's a lot. Um, I think they're being analysed now, the different recommendations. Some of them have already been implemented. So things like there are some trials of new technology that have been rolled out already, route-based weather forecasts, um, and then Network Rail have published 
their environmental strategy as well. So there's there's various things that are happening and the rest are are being analysed. So yeah, lots to take in there. So it's certainly not been a quiet month on the news front and it sounds like there's plenty of news to come, particularly on the rail side of things, maybe in a few months on the integrated rail plan, but certainly in the follow-up from the Stonehaven report. But now we're going to go back to the coronavirus conversation and bring in our special guest to talk about the effect the pandemic has had on people that work in the industry rather than the project pipeline and the industry outlook. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems. With digital technology changing the way the world lives, it's time to apply digital technology on infrastructure projects to close the productivity gap with other industries. Bentley invites you to gauge your organization's progress by taking one of their going digital assessments. Work with a partner you can trust and accelerate your pace if possible by going digital with Bentley at bentley.com forward slash going digital. The coronavirus pandemic has created a lot of change in the sector and a lot of uncertainty too. And it's that uncertainty that can be really challenging for people to deal with. And it's proven to directly impact on people's mental health. However, the widespread effect the pandemic has had on people's lives means that I've seen a really positive change in the way people talk about mental health issues and well-being becoming an important part of company policies. But when you're in a difficult place, it can be really hard to speak out and finding the right help is hard too, which is why Nadine and I are joined today by RSK's Health and Safety Manager for the Contracting Division, Lindsay Marie, and Principal Health, Safety, Environment and Quality Coordinator, Phil Hinchy. We're hoping that through the discussion, people will feel better equipped to spot the signs that someone's not coping and know how to guide them to the right resources to support them. Now, Lindsay manages the health and safety aspects of the 17 businesses within RSK's contracting division and is also a specialist member of the International Institute of Risk and Safety Management with over 13 years of experience. She's experienced in auditing, influencing behaviours and promoting a positive safety culture, training and coaching, incident investigation, project management and providing advice and guidance on industry and legislative standards. In 2020, Lindsay became a mental health first aider to offer mental health support and guidance, ensuring that all individuals within RSK have access to key wellbeing services through the Employee Assistance Programme. And Phil is a chartered member of the Institute of Occupational Health and Safety, with over 30 years of experience in health and safety, environment and quality in the distribution, construction and warehousing sectors. He joined RSK in 2019, but has been a mental health first aider for five years. And when he joined RSK, he took on the role of the firm's regional wellbeing representative for the West region of the UK. Before joining RSK, Phil was instrumental in establishing an award-winning mental health and wellbeing programme for Royal Mail. So welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you both with us. Thank you. Now, if you excuse me, I'm going to bear my soul a little here. And I'm going to say that I used to think that I was a strong person who could cope with anything. And I was not concerned about my mental health at all. But seven years ago, pressures from work along with family life all became a bit too much. And I struggled with work-related anxiety. And I was quite shocked at how it affected me. You could ask me about anything other than work. and I could talk freely asked me a work-related question, it was like I'd lost my voice. The words just would not come out. And I was very lucky. I had the support from my employer. I overcame the challenges, which included Nadine becoming my deputy editor on my old magazine, Grand Engineering. And I feel more resilient as a result of my experiences. But not everyone is that fortunate. I think it's widely acknowledged that the pandemic has had a significant impact on the, on the mental health of many people. I'm really hoping that the long-term positive aspect means that people are more willing to speak out about how they feel and for people like me to share their own stories too so others know that they're not alone. 
Now, I think before we talk about the impact of COVID on people's mental health and the construction sector, I think maybe we should set the scene a little here. Can you outline the challenge the sector already faced concerning mental health and suicide risk before the pandemic hits, please? Yeah, so within the construction industry, there was on average two construction workers per day that took their own life prior to the pandemic. The suicide rate was three times higher than the national average when it came to males in the industry. And 26% of the construction industry workers actually considered taking their own life. That's when you look at reports that have been issued throughout the industry as a whole. So, I mean, the statistics were really frightening. 97% recorded being stressed in the previous year, which was 2019. The published report was uh, May 2020 last year. So people do have concerns and pressures prior to the pandemic when it comes to the construction industry, working away from home, away from the families and the actual pressures of the job to make sure that the project hits the targets that are required by the client. And so what is it specifically about the construction sector that you think really exacerbates the challenges when it comes to mental health? And what has the industry done so far to help to overcome that? I think when with individuals working on site, you do get the pressures from the project itself. You all want to make sure that you deliver the project safely and within time, you know, the timescales that are set. But within the construction industry, it's obviously very clearly male dominated and it seems to be such a macho industry that people feel like they can't talk openly about poor mental health. The age range, when you look at the statistics, men between 39 and 45, they're raised when the children, they're told to, you know, not talk about the feelings. So in the industry, people don't tend to talk openly about it. But we are seeing a massive change, cultural change to that. There has always been a stigma attached to the industry, unfortunately. And so, I mean, you've mentioned obviously that kind of the stigma and that macho image, but do you think there was enough awareness about the support that was actually available? I think prior to the pandemic, there was loads of resources available, but whether they were publicised as much as they are today is a different story. I feel like we just started to turn a corner probably about four to five years ago from my experience in this industry. We'd started to raise awareness on mental health support and what is available, but I think the actual awareness wasn't as good as it is today. And obviously all those challenges you had there, now the pandemic's hit and added to the mix too. So you've got social distancing, making people feel isolated without face-to-face contact with family, friends and colleagues. Within your own business, what impact have you seen in terms of the mental health of your workforce over the last year as a result of COVID? Well, we've seen a lot of people who have struggled with that lack of interaction with their colleagues. They're used to being in a close supportive community within an office. And when that's suddenly taken away from you overnight with very little preparation, and you then maybe in your kitchen, in your bedroom, um, relying on technology that has never been tried and tested before, and we're all getting used to Zoom and to Teams meetings, it's very difficult. And outside of work hours, there may not have been so many people to talk to and openly discuss things with. Sometimes you're a little bit resistant to opening up and talking about mental health because you're afraid of the reaction that will come from family and from friends. I think as it went on and more and more people were speaking out about the challenges they were facing, others felt confidence that they would be could speak 
and not be stigmatized um, or labeled by colleagues or uh, you know family friends Um, because even the friends that you've known for ages when you talk about your mental health they want to try and change the subject so so sometimes people want to solve all the problems where sometimes it is you just need to talk too absolutely absolutely and there are many professional people out there who know how to support people in getting better and getting back on track with their lives and moving forward. There's part of us all that likes to be that nurse and that counsellor, but sometimes we've got to know our own limitations and know actually it's time to signpost them to people who can um, help them have more appropriate skills. But you're absolutely right. Listening is one of the key things you can do and letting them articulate their difficulties and their problems and the challenges they're facing. And then maybe you can come up with one or two suggestions. And sometimes for them, it's good to get it off their chest. It's good to know there's someone there who's in their corner, who cares for them uh, and really does take an interest. And suddenly that can be the first step that they need to either go uh, and get professional help or make changes in their their own lives and, and be in control of it and to move forward. I couldn't agree more with that, what Phil's just mentioned then, because I'm a typical empath, so naturally I absorb people's feelings and I want to help the world, but you can't do that in, in as a mental health first aider. You're not able to do that. You're not you're not a counsellor. We're here to provide support services to point them in the right direction. And you have to switch off sometimes because that's not our role. That If people start to rely on you heavily, then if you're not there for them in a time of crisis, then that's when it can be very difficult. So what is it about working in the construction sector that has been particularly challenging for your staff during the pandemic? I would say on this, it's been... The majority of it has been the lack of social engagement. When you're working on a big project, when you're actually site-based, you do normally tend to, when you're having a bit of downtime, you go and sit in the canteen and you all have a bit of a, you know, down tools, have a catch-up with everyone. We've not been able to do that. We've not been able to go and interact outside of work, which we would do if we're working away. There have been changes to the Construction Leadership Council guidelines throughout the pandemic with obviously changes with the government guidelines. So there's been a bit of uncertainty really when it comes to what should we be doing on site and trying to portray this confident image of obviously managing COVID on site. It's difficult when the industry as a whole is changing as well. So it's just trying to get people to trust that whatever information that you're providing them is from a trusted, reliable source. And if they've got any concerns, they know that they can speak to you about it. I think actually working away, a lot of the industry, people do work away a lot. However, they go back at a weekend home to the families, but there have been people that have been concerned about when they're going back home to the families, are they potentially bringing a risk of COVID back to the families, especially if they've been shielding or isolating? So it's just been all about communication, really, and reassurance. And again, some of the early days... They, when they could go back to sites and they could stay away, they were in hotel rooms on their own. They may have been used to shared accommodation um, where they would maybe sit together, eat together, watch television together. That was also taken away. And then you're 
in a room with four walls and there's not much else that they could be doing. And that guests get lonely. You start to be- become a little bit fractious about things, overcomplicate matters, overthink things. And also you try and fill that time with other activities. And this is where maybe some addictions may have come in. There's a lot of uh, gambling apps, uh, for example, where people just try a few rolls in the casino and the next minute they are trying to recoup money that they spent and it's never-ending downward spiral. So there's been a lot of that as well. And, And social media can be very constructive, but it can also be destructive to people as well. And where there are gaps in communication, there are people that will fill those gaps and the jungle drums, you know, will be beaten and rumours are mass, and sometimes it can be very hard. Also, building on Lindsay's point is that they were going away, and they wouldn't know if they were then going to bring the virus back with them to their family and friends, and some of them may have had um, loved ones who were shielding as well, uh, and would have found it difficult not to have gone back on site with opportunity to increase their earnings capability, and felt obliged but then in the back of their mind were conscious there's also the fact that there would have been families who were concerned about their loved ones being out on site and that anxiety would have fed through to them on phone calls and video messaging and of course that plays on their minds as well. I also think that prior to the pandemic when we carried out toolbox talks in relation to mental health as a whole Mates in Mind are a fantastic charity and they have a number of courses available and one of them is starting the conversation. So we'd advise and try and get people to engage in conversation about mental health. And a lot of the time that would be whilst travelling to work. So if you've got um, two people working together in a team, you'd have a conversation if you realise that whoever you're, say for instance, your lead drillers, they're not acting the normal self today, they're not as happy and chirpy. You'd have a conversation say, you know, is everything all right? We can't do that at the moment because obviously people are travelling alone. So we've had that disconnect as well when it comes to engaging in conversation on poor mental health. And you've touched on some of those key concerns for people having to go out and work on site. I mean, do you think that some people have actually left the industry because of a lot of these concerns? Phil and I discussed this earlier and I don't really feel like we, I don't think we can answer that Honestly, I'm not quite sure. Within our business unit, we've not seen that sort of change, have we, Phil? No, we we haven't seen an exodus of it. There would be an an element of natural wastage, you know, people either retiring or people leaving for other jobs. But we've not really seen a lot of people leaving and stating the arrangements of COVID as being a reason for that. I do think that um, with the construction industry, we've been really fortunate to be able to carry on working throughout the pandemic. And I think giving the reassurance to people out on site that we've got all the management, you know, we've got all the measures and control measures in place to protect them as much as we possibly can. We've actually used the track and trace apps to make, you know, to provide reassurance. And that's what it's been all about, really clear, concise communication. So I don't feel like people have left the industry because of COVID. I feel like they feel quite secure in the industry in relation to the control measures we've got in place as an industry as a whole. 
So can you talk me through how you evolved your support for mental health and wellbeing over the course of the last year within RSK? Yeah, very much so. Uh, we, we've been on a journey um, predominantly the last two years, but again, ramping it up in the last year. Our chief executive, Alan Ryder, signed the pledge for Time to Change around two years ago. And we went out to all our companies and got uh, employees from all our business units to sign a jigsaw piece. So each of our six divisions and our support functions had a piece of a jigsaw. And we put that all together to show that we are all one big family. And we often use the term within RSK, RSK family, and it does feel like that. And there is some real big demonstrable signs of that in terms of we have uh, well-being champions in nearly all our business units and all our sites. We have time to talk days and we recognise some of the big events such as World Suicide Day. We do a lot of tea breaks, video tea breaks, where we've been connecting with ourselves. We've also trained 60 mental health first aiders and we've got more in the pipeline to be trained. We haven't stopped that conversation, stopped that coaching because of COVID. We've been doing it in a different way um, remotely until we can get into a classroom and deliver the, the formal training. As I said, RSK family is a, a phrase that's often used, but you do feel that way. There is real demonstration of care. And for an example of that, Alan Ryder writing out once a week, updating people what was happening within the company throughout the pandemic. Uh, Zoe Brunswick, our group director of HR, would often write out and talk about, you know, uh, what she was doing to maintain her well-being and encouraging people to do the same. And throughout it all, we've been very proactive, making sure that there is good information flows and good risk assessments so our people are fully aware of the dangers and also the arrangements that need to be in place in order to maintain safe working during this pandemic. And those risk assessments have covered the sites, our warehouses, our laboratories, as well as our administration offices. So it's the change and the uncertainty that people often struggle with, isn't it? And they can cope with it for a short period of time. But we're now a year into the pandemic. What impact do you think the length of restrictions we've got have had on people? I believe that people can handle change if change is done well and there is good support around them and that includes accurate and concise communication. But it's inevitable the length of time when you've been away from able to mix socially with friends and especially family. And also the fact is that we all know someone who has passed away through covid but they've also passed away through other illnesses and you've not been able to be with them during their last few days. And even afterwards, you've not been able to celebrate their lives at uh, funerals with the wakes and things like that. There's also family get-togethers. We only had the one day at Christmas. That was very difficult for lots of people. And we've also come through the darkest uh, months of the year in terms of obviously reduced daylight, but post-Christmas, we normally have those blues 
and this has just exasperated it as well. And up until recently, there didn't seem to be a clear defined way out. Now there's a roadmap. Now the vaccination programme has been so successful. People have got hope again and know that if we all follow the rules, there's a big prize at the end of it. And I think it's that hope that's keeping people going. And, you know, we will look back and have a lot of lessons learned, a lot of experience from this, which I'm hoping will make us all stronger in the long term. But we just need to be with each other, support each other through just these next few months and be aware that for some people it won't be a light switch. It goes off and everything's fine again. There will be long term implications to this and we've got to be looking out for the signs and supporting for many uh, weeks, months, years to come. And do you think that people have actually become a bit more comfortable about speaking about their mental health now than they were before the pandemic? Yes, I do. And I think it's because many influential people have opened up about their experiences, and they were before the pandemic. Uh, The princes uh, were very good at this, and some very influential celebrities and sports personalities And what they've done is they've normalised the conversation. And actually, by removing the taboo element of mental health and saying it is okay to talk about it, and some of the stigma that people feel about it, I think has moved the agenda on tremendously. And again, I've been surprised how open some people have been and are not using the word stressed Uh, in a blasé format you know they're really talking I am struggling I am full of anxiety full of worries and I didn't have a good day yesterday or the weekend was pretty poor for me because I didn't see anybody and they are willing to talk about it and then there's also people willing to listen and I think it's got to be both sides of that equation and there's nothing worse than saying oh you can talk to me anytime but when they do need to talk to you you don't give them that time you don't switch your phone off, your, your your tablet and stop everything and just give them that attention. I think more and more of that is happening now um, and long may that continue. I think just touching on Phil's point there as well, um, I would say personally as well that I do believe people are more comfortable about speaking about mental health now, especially with the pandemic. We're all, we've all got this, not shared interest as such, but it is shared throughout the United Kingdom so it's not something that's just personal to us. It's as a collective. So we've all got concerns and we all do worry about certain elements of how it might impact our lives. But as Phil's mentioned about influential people speaking out, I think Tyson Fury, for one, coming out a big macho, big bloke, man's man, speaking out openly about mental health and his struggles that he's had has been so influential in the industry. I really do believe that. So you've mentioned mental health first aiders a few times in the conversation so far, but not everybody will have come across that term. Can you explain what a mental health first aider is and what what they actually do? What does the role involve? Well, to me, they're a first point of contact when somebody is struggling and they can be there to notice the signs of poor mental health, uh, to listen and to signpost people to support groups or may even be 
time to say, do you know what, you, you may want to go to your GP about this. And they are there very much to be that initial point of contact. And everybody's journey to recovery has got to start somewhere. And people are very reluctant in certain circumstances to open up to strangers. But if they know there's somebody there who is an equal of theirs in terms of uh, work status, but has been properly trained, then they will have that confidence because that initial getting to know you is taken care of. And they know that you are in their corner and you have their best interests at heart. So that really is what a first aider is. And like I said earlier, they're not counsellors, they're not professionals. They are there to point you to those people. And I think they are a valuable asset in every company. And Lindsay, you've been working as a mental health first aider for a year now. So what made you decide to take on the role? So I've worked in the construction industry for years now, but mental health has always been something that's been really relevant and personal to me, poor mental health in particular, having suffered myself. So I wanted to really take a hold of that and work with the industry to try and get that cultural change. So when I joined RSK towards the end of 2019, as Phil mentioned earlier, they'd started the actual programme to train mental health first aiders. So when I joined the company and I realised that this training was being, you know, presented by RSK, I was first to put my hand up to ask if I could go on the training. And so how long did it take you to do the training and, and did many of your colleagues also take part? So when I did the training, it was actually classroom based, which feels like a very strange environment to be in now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's, it's, it'd be nice to get back to that. But it was a two day course, um, two full days. Really, really fantastic course. I'd highly recommend it to anyone. At the time, I think I might have been on the third wave of training. So there was probably probably about 54 people that had been trained so far up until that point. There was about 10 to 12 people on each course, with it being classroom-based. We didn't have to social distance. <laughs> feels like a, a lifetime ago. Yeah, yeah. feels like heaven. <laughs> so what was the, the most surprising thing that you learned during the training? Having experienced poor mental health myself, I knew certain elements um, that were personal to me. But when you're on the actual training course itself, the, the instructor will tell you that you you can ask that question to an individual. Have you had suicidal thoughts? Do you, have, do you actually feel suicidal? And that's a very strong question and a very surprising one to realise that you can ask somebody. Because at the end of the day, that could save their life. It's quite direct, but it's very important to yes, actually establish yeah. that right at the beginning because it shows how urgent their, their needs might be. Yeah. Now, not everybody has a mental first aider at hand, and when you're finding things tough, it'd be quite hard to reach out and ask for help, as Phil's mentioned. So what are the common signs that we should be looking for in our colleagues to identify when their mental health is suffering? I mean, some of the behavioural signs could include they are becoming more irritable and confused, they, they, they're snapping at uh, people. That sort of relationship, which was strong previously, is, is suffering. They may come across as lacking energy, lacking uh, sort of motivation. You may notice that there are um, increased uh, use of substances, and you know, alcohol, maybe smoking more. Their decision-making may be suffering. Their timekeeping, again, 
uh, is poor, where previously it was good? Could we have a lot more absences? We talked about lack of motivation, lack of a loss of commitment towards the job. They could be complaining and moaning more. And like I said, becoming withdrawn. In terms of outputs, you know, the impact on work, maybe they're having more lapses, more errors, which leads to accidents or near misses. There's a lack of care in their work. They're not following instructions as once before they would do. Maybe because they are shown a lack of care, they're more likely to take shortcuts. Uh, they might be slow to change, uh, recognise changing situations, uh, react, um, whereas before they were quite alert. Uh, and where previously they may have been willing to challenge or voice their own opinion, they become more reclusive and more likely to follow the group consensus. But one of the things is people will uh, react in different ways. Those are some of the ways, more common signs. But again, people could be overcompensating in other ways, trying to cover their tracks because of they're, make, they're realising they're that not their normal self. They're not working at the pace that they used to. They're making more mistakes and so might be more deliberate in their work. And once you're aware that someone's not coping, what should you do and what resources could you direct them to? I think once you've identified that somebody's not coping, the first stage would be to approach that person, ask them if they're all right and have a conversation. Listen to them more than anything. There's an awful lot of support in, within the industry, within construction specifically, such as um, the Lighthouse Charity, and we've got Mates in Mind. We've also got the Construction Industry Helpline as well. So there's a lot. You can even do it so you can download an app. You don't actually have to physically talk to somebody on the phone if you don't feel like you're able to. You can have a conversation, just like a bit of a web chat, really. So it all depends on the circumstances. It may well be that somebody's not feeling themselves, but they just want to let it get it all off the chest and just having somebody to listen to them can make them feel so much better. But it might be that there's issues surrounding their family life or it might be financial matters like Phil touched on before. So it depends on the circumstances and to the extent as to what support services you'd actually um, put forward to them. So it's just really critical to listen and try and react to that rather than predict what, what they need. There's not a one-size-fits-all approach, to be honest, within, with mental health. We all have mental health, whether that's poor or whether that's good mental health. It's how we react to the, any external pressures that we've got. So, yeah, it's all about listening so you can give them support service, provide support, like support services that are relevant to their needs. And it, it can be really easy, can't it, to just dismiss how you're feeling as just a, a passing issue. So how can people identify when a problem is escalating? I think when you start to realise that you're not getting back to what you define as your usual self. So you might suffer from a poor, you know, a poor mood. And you might just, that might be a short term thing. It might just be the circumstances at the time. But when it starts getting up towards about six months, that's when you that's when you really need to start identifying that you need additional support. And that's when you'd suggest going and seeing your GP as well. So what are your top tips for our listeners to help them avoid reaching that crisis point when it comes to their mental health? To me, it's speak out and speak early. There is help out there and none of us should suffer in silence. So 
you know, don't be afraid um, to reach out to, to someone. I'd absolutely 100% agree with that. Is I would um, heavily advise people to talk. You know, there's, there shouldn't be this stigma attached to the industry. People should feel like they can go and talk. There's always somebody to listen. I, I looked at the statistics for suicide from the ONS that were published from last year. And up until quarter three of last year, the provisional results were 3,441 people had lost their life to suicide. That's not just within the construction industry, that's the that's England as a whole. So just talk, just reach out. It's the hardest thing ever is to speak out. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do, but it's the best thing you'll ever do. I think that's a a perfect kind of note to end on to just keep that conversation going, to keep talking. Thank you both so much for joining us today and talking about this really important topic. So if you've been affected by any of the issues we've discussed today, please remember that Samaritan's Helpline is available to everyone and you can call them at any time to talk about yourself, a family member, a friend or a colleague on 116123. Mates in Mind is also available with lots of resources specific to the construction sector which businesses can use to support staff or individuals and is also available to people working in the sector. And you can find this information at www.matesinmind.org. Over the last year, the Institution of Civil Engineers Benevolent Fund has also evolved its services to go beyond the financially helping members who are struggling to include outreach on wellbeing issues too. There's a 24-hour wellbeing helpline which is free to ICE members and can be accessed by calling 0800 587 3428 from the UK or for international callers it's available on plus 44 1482 699 177 and there are more details available online at www.icbenfund.com. If you are dealing with any of these issues I really would urge you to seek help and support as early as you can. Please take care and look after yourselves, your families and your colleagues and we'll join you again soon on the Engineers Collective. This podcast is brought to you in association with Bentley Systems. With digital technology changing the way the world lives, it's time to apply digital technology on infrastructure projects to close the productivity gap with other industries. Bentley invites you to gauge your organization's progress by taking one of our going digital assessments. Work with a partner you can trust and accelerate your pace if possible by going digital with Bentley at bentley.com forward slash going hyphen digital hyphen rail.